A number of years ago, when I was in college, a friend and I took a trip, uh, and during this trip, we went to New York City. Uh, while we were there, we stayed with my grandparents who lived outside the city, and we took the train into the city and arrived at Grand Central Station, and we knew the first thing we wanted to do in New York City was go see the Empire State Building. We had heard so much about it and longed to go visit it, and much to our delight as we walked outside at Grand Central Station, we, we looked up, and there it was, right in front of us. And we were so overjoyed. We, we said, oh, this will be great. We'll just walk there. We just started walking toward it. And, and, and a block later and two blocks later, we looked up, and it wasn't any closer. And another block later and another block later, it still wasn't any closer. You see, the problem is when a building is 100 stories tall, it can be far away and still look very close. It turns out, I, I believe it's close to a mile away from the station, actually. It looked to us like it was just right there. What I learned on that day is that perspective is very important. Things were out of perspective for me because I hadn't seen 100-story tall buildings before. I saw a building that looked, oh, yo, so tall, that, that must be pretty close. No, for a building that tall. It can look close and still be far away. Perspective is very important in how we live our lives. We see a, in our passage that we'll take a look at today, a passage that really deals with perspective. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul is talking about perspective. Not so much perspective about buildings and distances, but rather it brings to light having in the proper perspective ourselves and others, and most importantly, God. Please follow along with me now as I read from 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is instructive to us, that it is at times corrective to us, but especially that it is living and active and that it works in and through us. And we pray that that might happen this morning, that your word might work in us and that you might have your will with us, that we might be this morning and evermore to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I like good advertisements. Good advertisements I just find very interesting. And, and as I think back to some of my favorites, I, I think back to an era in the 1990s when, when Michael Jordan was seemingly a pitch man for everything. He was... He was 
very, very popular, perhaps one of the most popular people in the world at that time. And so everybody wanted him to endorse their products, of course. And we remember, remember the Nike shoes and, and all the different ads. You know, Nike is probably most famous for, for the Just Do It campaign. But I remember the ad campaign with Michael Jordan where, where he was so great. And they said, the, the campaign was, well, it's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. That's the key. And that's kind of the idea of advertising, isn't it? You have a slogan that kind of gets you to buy into it's the product that's the key. And maybe my favorite ad campaign was the one that Gatorade had during the time. And the thing I liked about it was, was two. One, one I had, it had a really catchy jingle. And the catchy jingle is great. But, but even more so, I loved the blatant honesty of the ad campaign. You know, sometimes they try to kind of trick you into believing something or whatever. Gatorade just came right out and said it. Their slogan was, be like Mike, drink Gatorade. And that was it. Be like Mike, drink Gatorade. And really, that's what all advertising slogans are, are doing. They're saying, you know, if you have a pitchman, it's saying, be like this guy and use this product just like he does. And you'll be like him. And I love the brutal honesty of that. Be like Mike, drink Gatorade. It's a great slogan. There's a problem with the slogan, though. It really didn't matter what shoes I was wearing, and it didn't matter how much Gatorade I drank. I wasn't going to win six NBA championships. I wasn't going to be able to take off from the free throw line and dunk a basketball. And I wasn't going to be the greatest basketball player in the world. There was, in a sense, some dishonesty there, wasn't there? I couldn't be like Mike. What we see here in this passage, though, is something a little different from that. It's similar in that it, it is kind of a slogan. Paul says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We have here what is perhaps a, a early ancient Christian creed or, or maybe a hymn. It, it's kind of a slogan, if you will. Paul is saying, and in this, this slogan, this saying, I have for you. But he says about this slogan is it's different because it is, he says, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You see, he's saying you can believe this slogan because it's actually true. Unlike Gatorade, unlike Nike, these words can be believed because they are true. And it's not just true for some, not just true for those who choose to believe it, but it is worthy of full acceptance. It is universally true. What is this saying? What is this slogan? What is this word that is universally true to be accepted by all? This word is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now there's a couple points we need to draw out of that. First of all, Christ Jesus came. I think we, we brush past this too quickly sometimes. At Christmas time, we, we celebrate the, the incarnation of Christ, that he became a human being, but, but we really, I think, oftentimes lose the the amazement at it. It's become almost commonplace to us. You know, well, yeah, you know, you know, Jesus became a man, you know, and walked on the earth for 30 some odd years. And, and 
it really should amaze us. We're talking about the God of the universe. The second person of the Trinity who existed in perfect fellowship from eternity past in all glory and splendor and honor deigning to take on human flesh. William Hendrickson puts it this way. He says that it implies the supreme sacrifice, the climax of condescending grace. From the infinite sweep of eternal delight in the very presence of the Father, Christ was willing to descend deeper and deeper into the realm of sin and misery. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? It is a world of sin and misery. It is a broken, fallen world. We are reminded of this, not just daily, but but moment by moment. The fallenness of the world is there before us. We see it in our own lives with sickness and with sin. And we need to remember that Jesus did not need to take this upon himself, but he chose to. He came. Why? Why? Well, we are told here he came to save. That's why he came. Oftentimes we lose sight of that. He came to save. He did not come just to be a great moral teacher. He did not come just to become a a moral example to us, to show us how we ought to live life. Certainly he does those things, but those are not the ultimate things he did. He did not come just to gather together a bunch of people to be on his team. You know, to try to scout out and find and gather together the very best people, and he'd have them. No, that is not why he came. He came to save. And it's important that we notice this, who Paul says in this verse, who he came to save. He came to save sinners. Sinners is a universalizing term, is it not? For we are all sinners. Romans tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who escapes that designation of sinners. We don't like to think of ourselves as such. I don't like to think of myself as a sinner. I'm sure you don't like to think of yourself as a sinner, but that is what we are. Sometimes we'll even see that that hymns will be rewritten and and we do whatever we can to avoid this thought. I I heard the story recently of somebody who had visited another church and and in their hymnal they sang Amazing Grace and, and this person was amazed indeed by Amazing Grace as they sang it. And the verse went, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Now I hope you noticed there that the words had been changed saved and strengthened me no no that's that's not how that was written i'm quite certain that john newton said that saved a wretch like me but we don't like to think of ourselves as wretched we don't we don't like to think of ourselves in such a sense i'm not wretched i mean i'm a whole lot better than most folks i mean most folks aren't even in church today i'm better than them right and, and I watch on the news and I see these people who are still stealing and they're, they're killing and they're, they're committing arson and they're doing all these terrible things and surely I'm better than them. They might be wretched, but not me. But that's not the message the Bible has for me. The Bible tells me that I am a sinner. I am a wretched sinner. 
and so are you. But that is what is so wonderful about the good news of the gospel. Christ came to save sinners. Not to save those who were righteous, but those who were in need of a Savior. And so we rejoice in that fact. I ask you today, are you convinced of your own wretchedness? Are you certain that you are a sinner? And does that sin cause you grief? Not because of the implications or the effects of the sin. You know, our, our sins cause us difficulty oftentimes. You know, I, I tell a lie and then that lie comes back to bite me in the end. And, and I'm sad because, you know, it came back to me and I got caught in it. You know, it's like if I find out my children are doing something wrong and I, and I discipline them. And they're sad because they got disciplined. Well, that's not the point. We need to grieve our sin because it grieves God, not because of the consequences it leads to. If I were Paul, I'll be honest with you, I probably would have thought I was pretty special. You know, this is the greatest missionary who's ever lived. Not just up to that point, but even since. He, he wrote half the books in the New Testament. He did amazing things for God. You know, I, I went into ministry because I wanted to have an impact for God. I wanted to, to be of benefit to him, be useful to God, to be, to be a minister of the gospel. What a wonderful blessing that is on me to get to do that. But I wanted to be used by God in that sense. If I were Paul, I'm sure I'd, woohoo! I've done a great job. But that's not what Paul says about himself. And I need to make sure that it's not what I say about myself. And each one of us needs to make sure that it's not what we say about ourselves. Because what does Paul say about himself here? He says that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now it's interesting. Paul could say, you could, you could think what he's saying. Well, he's remembering back, remember back in Acts 9, we were talking about Paul before that when he was Saul. He probably means back when he was Saul, he was the foremost of sinners at that time. He had persecuted the church and, and he had done these awful and terrible things and he had led Christians to their death. But that was old news, right? And that's why Paul says, you know, that Christ came to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. No, he doesn't say of whom I was. He says of whom I am. You see, the, the word there, translated foremost, or in, in many translations, chief, is, is literally first. He's saying in the long line of sinners that exists, I am standing at the very front of the line. He says, there is no one in front of me. His sin is so large in his eyes, he is so keenly aware of his own sin that he can't fathom that there would be anybody out there whose sin would be greater than his own. Now, how could this be? Surely Paul would have less sin in his life than somebody else. Well, perhaps. But in his eyes, in his vision, 
his sin took up the whole of his sight. It's interesting to note a progression in Paul's writings. You know, early in his writings, we see Galatians, which is most scholars think the first letter he wrote. He refers to himself in Galatians as an apostle. About five years later, he wrote to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Another five or so years later, he's writing to the Ephesians. And at this time, he's referring to himself as less than the least of all the saints. And now here we come to Timothy, toward the end of his ministry, and he refers to himself as foremost of sinners. Did Paul become more sinful over the years? No, I I think he most likely became less sinful over the years. But what had happened was his awareness of the holiness of God had become greater. And in light of that holiness, he realized his own sin more and more and more. And this is a mark of maturity in a Christian. And if we are maturing as Christians, it ought to be a mark of our lives. We ought to see our sin more keenly. We ought to see that we have a greater need for a Savior than we thought we ever did. How much time do you spend noticing your sin as opposed to the sin of others? Our sin should be far larger in our sight than the sin of others. If we find ourselves saying a lot of, oh, I can't believe the things he does. Oh, did you hear what she said? That was terrible of her to say that. Oh, I can't believe how he's passing this rumor around. Oh, I can't believe the terrible thing that she did. And Oh, if if we spend a lot of time doing that, that's a problem. And if we don't spend a lot of time saying, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. That's a problem too. We need to look into our own hearts, look into our own lives, and see the sin that is there, the sin that is real, the sin that needs to be forgiven, the sin that we cannot atone for ourselves, but the sin that Christ Jesus can and has atoned for. For he provides salvation. Not just salvation in the end where we are forgiven of our sins, but salvation in the here and now where we can be freed from the power of sin so that we can walk freely. Paul talks also in Romans 7, he talks about the sin that is in him and how he longs to do certain things but, but can't seem to find the power to do them. And then there's the things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself always doing. Perhaps you relate to that, I know I do. That as I walk through my life, I find myself doing these things that that I wish I weren't doing. And and there are things that I really want to do, but I can't seem to to get on track and do them. And, And I'm encouraged that Paul, who's an apostle, is able to say the same thing about his life. But he says, who who will deliver me from this body of death? It's Christ Jesus who does that. He frees us from that so that we can walk in holiness. Not trying to earn anything from him, not trying to gain entry into heaven, but seeing what he has done for us out of his grace, out of his love, and then as a response to that, being able to walk in greater holiness, out of love for him, out of thankfulness for him. But to understand his grace, we need to first understand our sin. 
That's why Jack Miller used to say, I can't believe how he's passing this rumor around. Oh, I can't believe the terrible thing that she did. And oh, if, if we spend a lot of time doing that, that's a problem. And if we don't spend a lot of time saying, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, that's a problem too. We need to look into our own hearts, look into our own lives, and see the sin that is there, the sin that is real, the sin that needs to be forgiven, the sin that we cannot atone for ourselves, but the sin that Christ Jesus can and has atoned for. For he provides salvation. Not just salvation in the end where we are forgiven of our sins, but salvation in the here and now where we can be freed from the power of sin so that we can walk freely. Paul talks also in Romans 7, he talks about the sin that is in him and how he longs to do certain things but, but can't seem to find the power to do them. And then there's the things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself always doing. Perhaps you relate to that, I know I do. That as I walk through my life, I find myself doing these things that, that I wish I weren't doing. And, and there are things that I really want to do, but I can't seem to, to get on track and do them. And, and I'm encouraged that Paul, who's an apostle, is able to say the same thing about his life. But he says, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's Christ Jesus who does that. He frees us from that so that we can walk in holiness. Not trying to earn anything from him, not trying to gain entry into heaven, but seeing what he has done for us out of his grace, out of his love, and then as a response to that, being able to walk in greater holiness, out of love for him, out of thankfulness for him. But to understand his grace, we need to first understand our sin. That's why Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, church you're far worse off than you think. It's a good word. It's a good word. We need to realize how bad off we are to realize how great the grace of God is. For if I am only a little sinful, then I only need a little Savior. But when I come to see the depth of my depravity, when I come to see the vileness of my sin, and I know how great a Savior I need and how great a Savior I have. For Christ Jesus, though I am a Savior, has loved me. But it's not all about me. It's not all about me. We spent a lot of time on that first point. We're going to go more quickly on the next two. I need to have a right perspective of self, but I also need to have a right perspective of others. We see here something that is very helpful for us in our fiercely individualistic culture, in our, our age of narcissism. We see a message here that is very helpful, I believe, because in this passage we've read in verse 15 as we've gained a, a, a right attitude toward ourselves. Then we turn to verse 16 and we see that Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul doesn't say, I, 
I received mercy so that I could be a super apostle. I could be a big shot. I could be this great. No. He doesn't even say, I received mercy so that I could, uh, you know, live to God's, God's glory and, and I'd be able to do that. And it's about me and I was saved and isn't that great that God's grace came to me. No, he says, I was saved. I was shown mercy so that I might be an example to others. That they might receive mercy. You see, God is working in my life for me, absolutely. But it doesn't end there. It's not just about me. He works in my life, blessing me, showing me grace, so that others might see that example, and they might, in turn, receive grace as well. Remember back with Abraham. Back when he was still Abram, he was called of God. God said that he would bless him so that he might be a blessing. And that must be our marching orders. We are blessed so that we might be a blessing. We receive mercy so that others might receive mercy. We are called to be an example to others. We need to have an attitude of self-forgetfulness. We need to not be thinking ultimately about ourselves. Not putting ourselves at the center of the story. But seeing others as ourselves. For the whole law, Paul tells us in Galatians, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a terribly hard thing to do. I don't do it well. And I'm sure most of us could say the same but it's what we are called to do. We are called to not only look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, not to earn anything, but because Christ Jesus has done this for us. He looked not only to his own interests, but looked to ours. And he showed us grace and showed us mercy. And so in turn, we must look to the interests of others. We must have what Tim Keller has called gospel humility. He says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. This gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. He goes on to say that that a truly gospel humble person is not a a self-hating person on the one hand or a self-loving person on the other hand. He is a self-forgetful person. It's not all about me. Next week, we'll celebrate communion. This week, as you're preparing for communion, I ask you to just look at your heart. Consider the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there is any enmity between you and a brother or sister in Christ, I urge you to go to them and be right with them Get right with them before you come back here and partake of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean that you need to win the argument. It doesn't mean you need to be the one who is right. Perhaps it means you need to be willing to take one for the team, if you will. For that's what Jesus did for you, is it not? Did he not take one for the team? Let that be our motivation. 
Let us look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And people will see this example. People will see this example of love amongst brothers and sisters, and they will be drawn to it. As the love of Christ flows in and through us, people will be drawn to the love of Christ so that we might be an example that they might believe. Jesus told his disciples on that last night he was with them that by this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That is what we're called to do. That is what we need to do. We need to realize our importance to others. We need to have a right perspective on others. So we have the right perspective on self. We have a right perspective on others, but it's ultimately not even about them. That's where Paul moves on here in verse 17. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You see, that, that's ultimately what it's about. It's about having a right perspective on God. He saves us, but that's not for us. It's for others. But it's not just for others. It's ultimately for God that he would be glorified. That's, that's what everything's about. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was bored. It wasn't just the next thing on some to-do list that somebody had given him. No, he created us for his glory. And glory has kind of a twofold meaning. It's, it's what, what might be called just the, the beauty of his perfections in one sense. But also his glory is, is the honor that we bestow upon him or toward him because of that beauty. And so we see in, in Isaiah 6 when the angels are, are crying out together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What we see there is they are recognizing his glory which exists throughout all of creation. But at the same time they are giving him glory for that. That's not to say that they add anything to his glory. When we glorify God we don't add to his glory. We are merely recognizing the glory that already exists. And that is what we are to be all about. Giving glory to God. The shorter catechism, first question, famously says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We should be able to, if you love one another. That's what we're called to do. That is what we need to do. We need to realize our importance to others. We need to have a right perspective on others. So we have the right perspective on self. We have a right perspective on others, but it's ultimately not even about them. That's where Paul moves on here. In verse 17, he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You see, that, that's ultimately what it's about. It's about having a right perspective on God. He saves us, but that's not for us. It's for others. But it's not just for others. It's ultimately for God that he would be glorified. That's that's what everything's about. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was bored. It wasn't just the next thing on some to-do list that somebody had given him. No, he created us for his glory. And glory has kind of a twofold meaning. It's, it's what, what might be called just the, the beauty of his perfections in one sense. 
but also his glory is, is the honor that we bestow upon him or toward him because of that beauty. And so we see in, in Isaiah 6 when the angels are, are crying out together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What we see there is they are recognizing his glory which exists throughout all of creation. But at the same time, they are giving him glory for that. That's not to say that they add anything to his glory. When we glorify God, we don't add to his glory. We are merely recognizing the glory that already exists. And that is what we are to be all about, giving glory to God. The Shorter Catechism, first question, famously says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We should be able to, with Jonathan Edwards, say, the greatest moments of my life have not been those that have concerned my own salvation, but those when I have been carried into communion with God and beheld his beauty and desired his glory. I rejoice and yearn to be emptied and annihilated of self in order that I might be filled with the glory of God and Christ alone. Whatever you do, 